Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. I've been on a team with my family and a sports team. Cool. And what makes a good team? Um... You can't be on a team with people that you don't know. You'll have to be friends with the people on the team. If it's a sports team, you can't do sports alone. You have to actually be with the team. And teams, team means being together, so you can't be separate. Welcome to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. I'm Hanuman Goleman, and I'm here with EI correspondent Elizabeth Solomon. Hey, Liz. Hey, Hanuman. I'm excited about today. This is the second episode in our summer leadership series, and we will be talking to Vanessa Druskett today, who does work on emotional intelligence in teams. And this is a great follow-up episode from our last um, episode where we talked with um, Brad Brooks and Courtney Harrison from One Login. And Brad and Courtney talked a lot about what emotional intelligence looks like in one login and focused distinctly on the need to create belonging, the need to know and, and be known by team members. Hanuman, we've had a lot of really incredible guests on our show in the past year. For real, right? For real. Yeah. And um, all incredible in their own ways and doing so many different kinds of work living in so many different pockets and regions of the world and society. But I will say, I personally was so excited to bring Vanessa Druskett on the show. Dude. I think she's kind of, um, the word that came to mind was like unsung hero, right? She's one of these mm -hmm. people who I'm always like, everybody needs to know about Vanessa Druskett. <laughs> Why doesn't everybody know about Vanessa Druskett? And by everybody, I mean people working in organizations, people thinking about leadership, emotional intelligence, um, people who share a lot of our interests and certainly fans of Dan's work need to know about Vanessa Druskett. So Hanuman, before we get started, can you just let our listeners know, how long have you known Vanessa? And what is your experience um, working with Vanessa over the years? I met Vanessa 
some years ago. <laughs> time time unknown. <laughs> I was just trying to think of what the first thing that we we worked with her on. I, I met her through uh, More Than Sound, through Keystep Media. It must have been the Crucial Competence videos. I don't know how long, but I do know that her work in emotional intelligence has been some of the most influential EI work on me and the way that I am as a leader. And I've brought her work into teams that I've led really explicitly. Like it's a collective experience to discuss her work and to develop the team along her guidelines because her work is completely based on data. It's so solid. She has watched teams in across so many different areas and has seen high-performing teams, low-performing team, average-performing teams. My goal, by the way, was to become an average-performing team. You know, it's so difficult just to be a good team, you mm. know? I mean, mm. and, and when I say average, I don't mean just like crappy. I mean, a good team, a solid team. And it mm. turns out that there's a lot that goes into it and there's, there's intentional cultivation to get there. Do you think it's fair to say that one of the criticisms of Dan's work has been like much personal growth and development work is that it can be um, focused on the I and then focused on the us, sort of the interrelationship between between two people, maybe slightly more, but that sometimes it's hard to bring his work all the way out into the system's perspective and understand what is emotional intelligence really look like on the systems level, right? Which is one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is because that was, it's kind of our core question with first person plural. What does emotional intelligence look like on all of these levels? But I think what's interesting about Vanessa's work is that it's all about teams, norms, culture, and context. And so in a way, when I look at her work and when I look at Dan's model, it's like they create the whole package together. They really address all the levels of I, us, and the systems component. Yeah, that sounds accurate to me. And, and I don't think it's a coincidence. It makes a lot of sense to me that Dan's work would reflect the self-reflection aspect because he's been like a very regular meditation practitioner. And, and I would say that his work is deeply informed by his understanding that's come from meditation practice and Connecting those three levels, the personal, the interpersonal, and then the systemic level, and, and how we're looking at it on this podcast, which is really more like theory and then systems and then personal, I think it's really important to understand it in all of these different ways. And just to take a look at like, here's the system that we were looking at and, and to really understand not the idea of the system, but what is the human reality of the system. Vanessa is bringing, like you're saying, this. she's bringing the system to life, right? It's like she's, she's bringing the humanity into the systems and, and the way that we relate to each other and fitting that into a larger puzzle. But she's keeping the humanity and it's, it's beautiful that she's able mm -hmm. to do that. I think it's very easy to get lost in academia and theory. And with that, let's launch into the conversation with Dan and Vanessa.
I'm so happy to be with Vanessa Druscat, an old friend, a colleague. Uh, she and I are both members of the Emotional Intelligence Consortium, the Consortium for Research on Emotional Intelligence and Organizations. And Vanessa, for years, has been doing what I think is the most stellar research on teams and what makes a team a top team. And uh, she has some new findings that I'm excited about, and I hope you will be too. So Vanessa, welcome. Thank you, Dan. Great to be here with you. Vanessa, first of all, what do you mean by a top team? How, how did you and, and Steve Wolf, your colleague, identify teams that were outstanding? Well, um, I learned this uh, research method from our mutual uh, mentor, David McClelland. Yes. And his idea was that if you could really study the people, he, you know, he studied individuals who did really well at a job, perform really well, or top performers, and compared them to others, that you could really learn about a job, really learn what, what it takes to be successful. But wouldn't the metrics for success vary from job to job? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh -huh. so we have had to, a big part of this research method is to find what the metrics are in different organizations. And so I, the first study I did was with David McClelland, our mutual mentor. And we went into a company that had 300 uh, teams, uh, 300 self-managing teams in this case. And we looked at you know, how many widgets they produced and how much waste they had. This is a manufacturing plant. And so primarily the number one thing was to be a top team, you had to fall in the top 10% of um, uh, per performance of performers. And we had to normalize performance across different areas of the plant, okay, um, statistically. Um, but then we also went and we got nominations. So we sent out nominations to people on the high levels of the organization. We said, who are your top teams? And then we also went to team members and we ran focus groups with team, team members. And we said, you know, here's a list of all the teams in the plan um, of, of the ones you know well, who are the best? And so in order to fall into the top team category that we used as our standard, you had to be in the top 10% of performance on all three of those. So again, number of widgets produced or whatever your performance metric was, nominations from the top hmm. brass and then nominations from team members because they these members had worked in many different teams. They moved around quite a bit. So that gave us a very confident um, picture of who was outstanding. Um, we also ran some um, tests on that. We did some, you know, I had, uh, uh, what do we call it? I can't think of the name of it, but you know, you make sure that these surely are good teams. Um, and then I took that method with Steve Wolf. Steve Wolf and I took that same methodology to other companies. So for example, the, the one company we can talk about um, a lot is the drug development teams at Johnson & Johnson because they, they gave us permission to mention their names. And so we did a similar thing. We found out who, who were meeting their, their uh, top performance metrics um, consistently over time who did the top brass nominate as best and who were the team members nominating as best. And again, we did a similar thing and we, we interviewed uh, and we, then what you do is you interview them like crazy to find out what do you do that's different than other teams. And that's, that was the exciting thing. Um, and, you know, we did that within, in a number of companies um, and when the patterns start to arise and you get a picture of, 
the processes, the actions, the culture of the teams that are top teams. Can you give us a kind of synopsis of, you know, a profile of the generic top team? What leads to high team performance? Okay, so um, high team performance, first of all, and I think this is utterly the most important thing, members really know one another. They um, know each other's strengths, each other's weaknesses. They, and this is what my new research has started to examine, Dan. I, because I, I wanted to know, I couldn't figure out, you know, we've been taking our model to organizations around the world and building teams, and it seems to work really, really well. And so I said, what is going on here? It can't just be knowing one another. Um, and a few other things, which I'll, I'll elaborate on, but knowing one another seemed to be the beginning of it all. And, and so what was going on when we forced them to get to know one another? And not just, you know, do you have a partner? Where do you live? Where'd you grow up? Um, because some teams don't want to talk about that personal stuff. But but also, what what do you like about your job? What's most challenging? Um, you know, how'd you get here? What'd you do before this? That that kind of stuff. Um, but anyway, what I've learned now is that it creates this sense of belonging, mm -hmm. to be known, to feel known, heard, understood, felt, you know, really seen as who you truly are is a gift and it opens you up in ways that allow you to relax, allow you to put up with things that you wouldn't normally. Um, it reduces your defenses. And you know, this is, this is uh, connected to our brains. It's connected to evolution, which I can elaborate on, but I wanna hear what your next question is first. Well, it seems that you're talking about psychological safety. I remember there was a, well-publicized study at Google that said this was like the number one characteristic of their top teams. Uh, and I, I think you've talked about it in terms of a sense of belonging. Can yes. you elaborate on that? Absolutely. So, and this is something that this explanation is gonna come up partially out of my experience with teams and partially out of the research that I've done subsequently. Having been with a lot of teams, I've seen how difficult collaboration really is. I've seen that people hold back and the research supports this. You know, they, they don't wanna step on others' toes. They don't wanna be the one who creates problems. But I think even more importantly, they don't wanna give away their best secrets. Hmm. The higher you get up in the hierarchy, um, you have people who are holding on to things. It's what makes them stellar. Right. So if I share this with the team, it's no longer mine and knowledge is power in the knowledge economy. And so safety is wonderful, but it doesn't motivate you to do certain things. It doesn't it doesn't foster motivation. It's not a motive. Right. I mean, it, it does allow us to take risks. And I think it's fundamentally important. I, I, you know, I can't say enough about building psychological safety. But so the first thing is, it's not a motivator. Belonging is a motive. It is our primary social motive. We've evolved to have this primary social motive, this desire to belong. And when we do belong, it motivates us in a different way than feeling safe does. But the other part of that is that people don't really know how to build safety. So if you dig deeply into the literature, which I have done, 
And, and it's a great literature. And, you know, Amy Edmondson's a, a friend of mine, and I love this work. And I, you know, tons of articles looking at this. But one of, one of the dilemmas right now is that we don't know quite how to build it. So what I'm arguing now, I'm beginning to argue, and, and I have tested it somewhat, we do know that our team emotional intelligence uh, supports the development of psychological safety, right? Um, and so, but my new argument is that belonging opens you up in a way that makes safety a little more accessible, right? And then, so you're motivated to engage. Safety then takes the risk factor away from it even more. And then when you're in an environment that safety, it probably comes back around and creates more belonging and more safety and blah, blah, blah. You know, the thing with teams is they're complicated, right? Complicated cycles of, of feedback loops. Uh, you mentioned something I like, uh, uh, maybe you can elaborate on. In what sense is a team emotionally intelligent? What does it look like on a team? Emotion is so prevalent in teams. And I'm now really understanding, since I've been digging into this belonging motive, that many of the emotions that we feel in teams stem from our primary need to belong. So we have, you know, our lovely Bluetooth um, ability to scan people's faces. You know, we're, we're constantly scanning. And it turns out that even before we walk into a team environment, okay, MRI studies have shown that we're thinking about the team even before we get in. Our emotion is signaling approach or avoid. All right. Mm. So let's just capture emotion right now as thinking about a signal that tells you whether this is something you can approach, you will approach willingly, or you will avoid somewhat or protect yourself from. So again, it happens even before you enter the team, you enter the team. And again, you scan the faces, you know, you scan and it's constantly changing. But that emotion that you feel tells you whether to approach or avoid. And there's an awful lot of difficult signals being sent in teams. Um, and um, unless the signal is, you know, periodically that you matter, that you, um, you're worth, worthwhile in this team, that you have a sense of social worth, um, that we value you, that you belong here, you're not easily replaced, then we don't let our guard down and we're wasting our talent, scanning faces rather than thinking about the problem, hmm. right? And the problems are complex in teams because you have your own ideas and others have their ideas. And you have got to listen carefully to the rival ideas and the rival motivations. And you've got to take that into your database, your mental database, and let it either alter you or not. And you've got to take the criticism about your ideas. And so this kind of work that, that, um, that we see in the top teams where people are doing this necessitates your feeling that there is not only a, no threat here, but you belong, you're valued. You don't have to prove yourself, right? So uh, let, let me circle back to uh, unpack a little more about emotional intelligence at the team level. You know, what does self-awareness look like? What does self-management look like? What does empathy look like? What does social skill look like on a team? So if we, when we talk about team self-awareness, um, we're talking about 
awareness of more than just the task, which is often, you know, it's mm. under time pressure these days, often the primary um, uh, focus of the team leader, the ner nervous people, let's get back to the task. But awareness needs to be, you know, broader than that. Um, and so there's another motive, there's a secondary social motive that I want to bring up, which is something that we call shared understanding. So a secondary motive um, is a motive that supports your belonging, okay? Um, belonging being the primary motive. Um, but people want to know what's really going on here. Mm. They feel, they can feel when there's tension. They can feel when it's, uh, you know, they feel emotionally that this might be uh, a, a situation that's, that's um, um, that they want to withhold from, you know, they can feel things, they can feel tensions in the room. They want to vet those feelings. And too often those feelings get vetted outside of the team. Okay. In those hallway conversations behind the closed door where we say, Hey, what was really going on there? What's so-and-so what's going on with so-and-so. Mm -hmm. So a team self-awareness um, can happen inside qualified inside the team where we talk about what's really going on here. What are our, what, what are people feeling? You know, what are your worries? What are your needs right now? What, what should we be focusing on? You know, you can't do it all the time, but you do need to do it periodically. And it serves a sense of belonging because it gives people a better sense of control, which is also feeds into our need to belong. We don't think we can sustain our value in a, in a team, our belonging, if we don't have any control. How, how does awareness relate to control? All right, so we're working on a task. We're trying to get this, 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 this drug done, but there are tensions. People aren't saying things. We can't get something from our stakeholder. Uh, we're worried about, the, about um, whether or not the boss even knows the hard work we're doing. You know, there's a lot that's always going on around the, around the periphery. Um, and team members are fully aware of that. Okay, so um, if we can have a time where we can talk about all these worries, right? And talk about our own needs, talk about ourselves, um, and talk about the team, um, then we feel a greater sense of control over what's happening in that team and a greater sense of our own control over our own role and maintaining our sense of value. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. I'm remembering your earlier model that yeah. looked at emotional intelligence or, or the norms within a team. Mm -hmm. and between teams and toward the larger organization. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could just run us through that. So we have three categories of um, norms in our model. So uh, let, me, let me preface this by saying that our model is about building a culture, building an emotionally intelligent culture. Um, and so this is a, this is a powerfully different um, model from other models because we're about building a culture. Culture impacts behavior and it impacts emotion, right? What is culture? Culture is your values and the norms that operationalize your values, okay? So the rules of interaction, how we do things around here. So we have three buckets, if you will, of norms. One is about how we take care of the individuals in the team. That's one bucket. Um, and the second bucket, um, is about how we operate and learn about the team itself, build team self-awareness around the team and how we manage that team process, okay? So for example, one of the norms in that um, 
bucket is called proactive problem solving. And so one way we manage our nervousness in that team is we talk about things that are coming up and we think proactively. Okay. The third bucket is about um, understanding our stakeholders and building relationships with our stakeholders. So those are the three buckets. Those are three buckets, that, the three categories of behavior that we saw over and over and over again in the top teams. And you also talk about how top teams relate to other parts of their organization or clients or people yes. who are other groups they interact with. Can you say a little yeah. about that? Yeah, absolutely. So that third bucket is about really understanding your stakeholders and stakeholders are, are uh, it's a broad category because the stakeholders um, vary from, you know, your bosses and your boss's boss, the people above you, um, you know, your clients or your customers. Um, the teams that work beside you that you interact with that that you know provide information to you those with whom you're interdependent and the people who you work for if you have people working um, um, you know for you so too often teams average teams feel like they have all the information that they know that they that they need so they'll say yeah there's some things going on out there but we we got it covered you know we got we're, we're we've got a great team members and we've got members from these different areas and we've got it covered um and they don't feel the need to go out and continually refresh what's going on um in the world of the stakeholders top teams do things like invite stakeholders in for you know an, an interview like this on on a zoom so you they'll they'll say all right, boss's boss, come visit us for 15 minutes. What's on your mind? How does our work relate to what you're doing? What do we need to know? Okay, that 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 that, that can 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 help us. This again gives team members a sense of control, and it, it helps um, you know vet what we're imagining is going on out there. Uh, oftentimes, this is the job of just the team leader. You know, we tend to think of the team leader as being the boundary manager, goes out and brings that stuff back. But what we found is that in the top teams, you assign it to people, you assign ambassadors. And by the way, you build good relationships. You don't wait for them to come to you. You go out and build good relationships for them so that they'll bring the resources to you when you need them. And it's easily overlooked, this task is easily overlooked. I wonder if you can uh, unpack a bit I remember your earlier research on emergent leaders. You said something that really struck me that the leader of a team is not the designated leader necessarily. It's the person with the most influence. Uh, and how does a leader help to build an, uh, a positive, high-performing, emotionally intelligent team culture? Yeah, that's a great question. Because it's really tough to build an emotionally intelligent team culture without... Um, people with status in your team without the, the help of them. So um, every team has um, people with status. You know, there's a status hierarchy, hierarchy out there. You know, within um, the team. Yes, within the team. Right. And this, this can be... Um, th this can be the source of a lot of problems. If the people with the status don't recognize that they have status, don't recognize that... Oh. Um, you know, that they, they, people with status tend to think that the norms are just fine, you know, because they define, you know, norms follow status. There's, there's, a, there's a phrase for you. Norms always follow status. The most influential person sets norms yes. uh, that people follow without necessarily realizing what they're doing, but everyone else on the team knows. I do oh, yeah. it because, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you absolutely know when you're, you know, lower in the caste system, right? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So you, um, for example, here's, here's a great example because, you know, my colleagues and I worked with this one team where um, we, we helped change the culture of the team by telling people they could no longer pick up their phones and look at them while certain people were talking. Really? Yeah. Because you know when you're going to pick up the phone? Not when Dan Goldman's talking. The people who are lower in the status hierarchy are the ones who, as soon as they start to talk, I check my messages. So people check their phones in front of other people? In a team? Oh, gosh, all the time. That's just minor. Or you'll turn and you'll have a side conversation. Or you'll look down or you'll start typing your notes. Or you'll do, this is, this is rampant. And you probably don't notice it, Dan, because when you're in the room, no one does that to you. But however, what you're saying is that there are all kinds of nonverbal signals that people are not paying attention. I, I was clueless about how many nonverbal signals were being sent until I started reading the literature on belonging. Because it, it's this nonverbals that signal whether or not we're valued or we're not valued, and whether or not we need to keep our guard up and be careful about what we're going to say. So think of it this way. You know, I'm someone who's lower in the caste system, and I'm in a meeting with people, and they pick up their phones, or they look away, or they have a side conversation, or they start typing when I'm talking, which pro I promise you happens in every team. So what do you do? Well, first of all, your brain does not miss that. Our brains do not miss a trick. We see it all, especially in teams, because we have such a strong desire, such a strong need, motive to belong, to be mm. valued. Mm. And so we start to qualify and check what our, um, you know, what we contribute how often we contribute, what we say, what we feel we can say, what gets noticed, what doesn't, right? Um, and it, it becomes, we become more self-focused rather than other-focused when we're in that mode. So do those nonverbals of inattention happen less on top teams? Yes, absolutely. So and that's just huge, yeah. This is really interesting because um, full presence or full attention also is correlated with a happier state. Social worth, self-worth, you know, how people react to you and what you say and the so, micro so, behaviors are critical. Yeah, so people's sense of belonging is reinforced by the lack of inattention. Yes, let me tell you something that's even more interesting, Dan, is that um, we are so wired to notice this that if I, if you say to me, hey, Vanessa, in the middle of this conversation, I am going to start typing in my computer or I'm, and I'm going to start doing a side conversation uh, with Hahnemann and I'm going to say, oh yeah, no problem. The moment you do it, my brain freaks out. If I'm in an MRI, my brain, fear, fear, anxiety, it's a trigger. Uh -huh. And even if I know it's coming, it's involuntary. All right. So, but of course, this is for people who don't already feel like they belong. So if you're the boss and this happens, so again, this is where that, that caste system becomes uh -huh. so important in a team. If you're the boss, you know, you belong, you're not worried about that. You know, again, back to this idea of before you even walk into the team, your brain is already registering. What do I need to be fearful of? Can I relax? Mm. 
Hmm. Can I just feel a sense of, you know, kind of homeostasis when I'm in here? Can I just be myself? And, but guess what? When that boss goes to their uh, team that's run by their boss, it's a whole different story, right? And so most of us at some point are in a team where um, involuntarily we are experiencing this. People don't know they have a need to belong. Everybody knows about this, about the fear of exclusion, right? Everybody knows, you know, because exclusion is the opposite. And there's been right. so much research yes, on, yes. on exclusion. There's just been tons of research on exclusion. We know a lot about it. There's been a lot less research on how do we build a sense of belonging. So I'm going to bring up something entirely different, but I think it's very important. You say in the Harvard Business Review did a survey that showed that uh, business leaders think collaboration and teamwork is critical to their strategy. This was in 2019. Yes, But indeed. organizations are looking to technology to make their teams more productive. Why is that a mistake? Because technology doesn't build bonds. Technology, it just doesn't. It doesn't fill that need. You know, back to this, you know, having someone look you in the eye and um, confirm for you that you are worthy, that you, that you add value to the conversation or that you are valuable. You know, you're valuable to me. You're valuable to us. You know, um, you know I, I don't know if I ever, did I ever tell you about the, the dissertation that I was a part of at Case Western, I had a grad student who did a dissertation I don't know. looking at um, change. Uh -huh. She wanted to know who weathered the change well and who didn't. This was an organization that was flattening its hierarchy. Uh -huh. And she collected data for a year, full year. She lived in the organization as they were going through the change. And she found at the end of the study that what predicted most clearly whether or not someone would weather the change was whether or not they felt they were fully valued by their team leader, mm. by their by their leader, wow. that they added value and that they were irreplaceable. That's interesting. We, Ed, yeah. we crave that. We crave feeling valuable. And you so, can't, technology can't do that for us. Th th this brings to mind that Japanese saying, all of us are smarter than any one of us. That is, there's value added in, in the team itself. Yes, yes. Great. Do you find that? Oh, absolutely. When the team is running well. In the top uh, teams, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's what you're aiming for. Who doesn't so, love that feeling when you're part of a team like that? One of my pet peeves has to do with looking people in the eye on Zoom. The camera should be in the middle of the person's face. Yes, it should, <laughs> yes. <laughs> because yes. you either look at yeah. the camera or you look at the face. Camera right. Face. You just yeah. don't have the same eye contact, which the brain craves, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But so in other words, tech is not sufficient in and of itself to uh, make a top team. You need to deal with the, the interpersonal dynamic, the reality of the team. Well, let me tell you, that's what we see in the top teams. That's over and over and over again. And when we, by the way, tech is not all bad. I mean, Nowadays, it's hard to get away without having using technology. And when we've worked with teams, you know, for 10 years, I've been out in the field working with teams using the team emotional intelligence model to build better teams. We've been meeting on Zoom with teams and doing team building sessions with teams for, for eight or 10 years. I don't know how long Zoom's been around. First, it was on Skype. And then we went to Zoom as soon as it opened up. And you can do that. 
Mm-hmm. But it's not quite the same. You don't quite get the emotional resonance that you get when you're face to face. You can't right. feel like you're part of something. Yeah. I remember I was asked to come to a, a company I can't name that had a web platform for, for teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had a problem in that the wrong people were checking their phones during team meetings, which means they were not engaged. Yes. It's, it's one of those nonverbals. Again, they don't do it when the team leader's talking. Oh, that's you got to remember, people with high status, so they don't realize the norms have to change. So they have to be open. This is why one of the great things about Team EI is when you have these conversations about what's really going on, you can get this information out. But you have to have a, a, a strong um, uh, ability to, to manage your own emotions, your own anxiety as a leader, to open yourself up to that conversation. I found really interesting uh, a point you made about the difference in brain function between a sense of belonging and a sense of not belonging, exclusion. Can you tell us about what the brain looks like under exclusion and what it looks like on belonging? In exclusion, it's extremely self-focused. It's about protecting. It's about avoiding a problem. Remember, as you well know, that the brain, our brain is just simply trying to save our lives. And the most complex situations we're in these days are social situations. And we do not, we do not want to feel excluded. We don't want to take a hit to our, or to our sense of self, our social worth. And maybe you can tell a story about it. I don't know. Do you have one? So uh, we have this one team. And, you know, oftentimes teams come, come to us when the leader is, uh-huh. is wise enough to know that something's not, not fully working. working in the team. It's a great team. We're doing fine. But, man, are we wasting our potential. So in this one team, there was a, a person who every time the leader would speak, started looking at the ground and sort of, you know, scratching his knee and, mm-hmm. and just doing these nonverbals that were, that were um, not helpful and in, in the way of, of the conversation. Oftentimes he would get up and leave the room when, when certain people spoke, okay? wow. time, time to use the restroom, right? Um, and so when we gave that person an opportunity um, to, to uh, talk about himself, to, to, to share more about himself and his needs in the team. Mm. And when we gave him an opportunity to talk about what was working and what was, wasn't working in that team for him, he completely changed his behavior. All of a sudden, um, so that was, you know, there's one meeting there. There's another meeting a few months later and um, we walk in and this man is at the center of attention now. He's really gung-ho, huge esprit de corps, definitely feels like he belongs. And, and much of it was just the opportunity to speak his mind and, and to feel known and to get messages back that he was valued in the, in the process. So he wasn't avoiding, he was approaching now. And if you don't have people approaching, and, then you don't, you don't have a, a top team. One of the things you talked about uh, in the brain on exclusion is having a hair trigger, being overly sensitive yes. to, for example, these nonverbal cues of inattention, I suppose. Yes. Okay, so let me give you that about the, the, the hair trigger of that. By the way, um, the hair trigger is, is a phrase that I learned from you, Dan. 
I love that phrase. That's a good phrase. (laughs) It's a great phrase. It's how quickly, how quickly, how sensitive we really are, how we react. All right. So the research on exclusion uh, shows us that if we're in a team and if even one person looks askance at us, or let's say, um, you know, frowns while we're talking or, or, uh, you know, looks like they're, they're questioning our, uh, the validity of what we're saying. We believe the entire team feels that way. Same we way. feel excluded. Oh. Our brain represents that as a threat that the entire team likely feels that we are not um, adding value. So you start to see the importance of culture, of cultural norms, right? Mm-hmm. You start mm-hmm. to see this is a perfect example that will tell you that it's not good enough to go out and teach somebody empathy and bring them back into this environment, right? Because I don't care how much empathy I have or I give. When someone looks askance at me while I'm talking, my brain tells me I'm not, I'm not valued. Uh-huh. I don't belong uh-huh. here. Uh-huh. Yeah? Uh-huh. And, um, and so how else can I, what other examples can I tell? Oh, here's the other thing that's fascinating about that is you would assume that when we're treated like we don't belong, you'd assume that we would compensate by um, behaving, you know, in, in, ingratiate and mm-hmm. by behaving really, um, um, I don't know, um, helpfully, like we would turn into very helpful people. And what, what the research shows is that we'll do that for a small period of time, but exclusion reduces our ability to control our emotions. So when it doesn't come back and work, which it never does, by the way, we start to get angry. We lose our self-control and we start engaging in bad behavior. So a huge source of bad behavior in teams and what's bad behavior in teams? People who repeat themselves over and over again. They interrupt people. They speak too loudly. They, you know, name name it. There's, I I hear about bad behavior in teams all the time. And, um, but so many of these bad behaviors occur because these people feel excluded and they lose they prioritize regaining control over over fitting in this is what the research shows meta-analyses show that this is what happens when you feel excluded in a team so people on a team need to feel they belong they're safe they're included they matter they add value, and that allows them to do what? That engages them in the team's task. It reduces their self-focus, okay? Now we have emotions that tell us to approach, Mm. engage, Mm. not worry about the threat. Our ideas don't have to win, okay? It, It improves the collaboration. And I wanna come back to what I was saying earlier about the hard work of team collaboration these days. You know, let's take a look at building a vaccine that's gonna, um, you know, help us end the, the pandemic. This isn't done by one person. This is done by a lot of people with a lot to gain from having people hear their side of the story and move in their direction. So you have to create an environment where people feel they're part of something. They belong to this group. They are part of something important and they don't feel defensive. You bring up something I think is very important. The teams these days are really distributed. Mm -hmm. They're not like one group. 
mm-hmm. in one place at one time. Yes. So like the, the vaccination development team might have been a global network of people working Absolutely. together. Absolutely. Do you think in these large networks, the same dynamic applies that you found? That is, is there a, a boundary limit to teamness? Oh, absolutely. You have to work in subgroups. When the team gets too big, you're working in subgroups. And then, and then you've got to develop a culture in those subgroups. But yeah, and you can do it. I mean, one of, the, one of the brilliant things in the world today is that we can work in these distributed teams. So we can really get the talent that we need. And I want to come back to that in a second, because you absolutely have to have the skills on the team. You have to have the best skills on the team to solve important problems. But in order to unleash the talents of those people, you have to have more than, than a um, than an in, clear and engaging mission. You have to reduce my defensiveness and engage my approach emotions. So here's where tech doesn't matter. That's ex- that's exactly an interpersonal thing, reducing an, your defensiveness. Yes. I don't care what tech you're using. Yes. It has to do with how you feel about me and I feel about you. Yes, yes. And, and, and let me say this. You are going to feel defensive. You are, go- and you, we want you, we want you arguing for your perspective and you are going to feel defensive. So what we don't want is an environment where that defensive sticks around and affects you. We want you in an environment where we say, okay, Dan, uh, you know, we're not taking your idea right now, but by the way, we love you. Keep bringing them on. You know, we can't do this without you, Dan. Um, uh, And so here's the thing. The need to belong doesn't need to be met constantly, constantly, constantly. It doesn't mean, you know, just like emotional intelligence doesn't mean being nice all the time. You know, in an emotionally intelligent team, you have created a container where you've given me enough sense of my self-worth that when I'm hurt, I'm not devastated. Okay. So I can be honest with you. Yes. And we can have a conversation later, or I say to you, you know, I'm still riveting over the fact that you didn't, you didn't agree with my point, you know, and I'm still, let's get a sense of where we're going. I want to, I, I need a better, you know, back to this idea of creating the shared sense of reality, giving each of us a sense of control so that we know that we're going to be able to maintain our, our sense of belonging. So speaking of that, is there a shared sense of purpose on a high performing team? And how does that matter? It absolutely matters. I consider that a boundary condition. You know, it's one of these um, um, necessary but not sufficient. Too often, we think that the mission um, uh, can do it all. And the mission is absolutely necessary. You know, we have to, during those tough times, you know, think about the the, the team that's, that's building the vaccine. What a mission in front of them. But I can t- tell you that if I'm a member of that team, no matter how smart, no matter how much I've been stroked outside of that team, when I get in there and all of you are, are not helping me feel like I belong and I'm valued, I'm, I'm becoming more self-focused. And that is clouding my ability to fully contribute to this mission. That makes sense? Other, yeah. Are there other obstacles that people on teams may not be aware of to uh, that prevent members from giving their best, giving their all? 
what are some of the things that get in the way? Um, well, the obvious ones today, right? Time, uh -huh. right? Opportunity. Time pressure. Yeah, time pressure. Um, or skills. So, you know, R Richard Hackman, who I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure you, you, you knew Richard before he passed away, um, who was um, also one of my mentors. He, he made the argument in his last book, he wrote this book called Collaborative um, Intelligence. He worked with the CIA and the FBI to help them work together to do a better job of preventing another 9-11. So after 9-11, the FBI and the CIA realized they weren't working together. Um, you know, two, two very different cultures. You got a bunch of computer nerds and you got a cops on the beat mentality coming together, not valuing one another. And so Richard spent a lot of time, did a lot of work with them, training them, helping them, trying to figure out what could really help them beat these simulations, which were these MIT scientists trying to, you know, these simulations that were uh, potential 9-11 kind of things. Um, and one of the things he found was you absolutely needed to have the best top skills in the air identify the skills you need and bring in the talent. So one thing that can hamper a team is if you don't have the skills you need, right? You don't have the experience in the room. You also have to make that mission front and center. But again, those two things are not sufficient. You have to have norms that create. Now he didn't use the word belonging, he used the word respect and a few other things. Um, but you know, he had in his book, he's got plenty of, of, of anecdotes about people on teams, you know, women getting ignored, uh, the lower people in the lower cast not being taken seriously, um, being asked why they're even in the room, you know, things like this. And you think that's conducive to me giving my best, for, you know, um, I, and, and we all know, uh, you know, we're becoming, we all are knowing more and more often now who falls into that lower caste. You're losing, you're not using, you're not utilizing the talent. What we see in top teams is that, they take the time to know the talents, get to know, back to this idea of, of the awareness of who's in the room, building a sense of understanding of the members. Um, and they take the time to have the open conversations. They make the open conversations a little bit easier. We call this support expression now, um, where we, you know, we make it easier for you to speak your truth. Um, and, um, and that environment, that culture is created and people feel like they belong and it builds top team. Does the leader help build a culture like that by embodying it, demonstrating it? How do norms get established on a team? Norms follow power. And so again, um, norms are held, they're pretty much defined by, I mean, I, I can sit with you and say, what are the ground rules that we wanna have? What are the norms we wanna have in this team? And the team can come up with them. This often happens in teams. And then the next day, the team leader comes in and does something completely different, right? And the team leader doesn't even know it because people don't speak and don't say anything, right? The team leader, and the norm right there is that you don't, that, that the team leader is gonna set the norms really, which is what happens most often without them really realizing it. Um, I mean, I've worked with enough leaders now to know that they're, they're not self-aware enough to know it. They're, they're not, um, you know, they, they, they can't believe that people get nervous around them. Can you give me a concrete example of a leader setting a norm? So the, the team leader says, I don't want any elephants in this room. In other words, 
I don't want you thinking something and not sharing it. If there's something that I don't know, I want it to be shared. I want this, I want to support your expression. I want to support your ability to bring up what's on your mind. And so I'm going to have this hat over here or this tool over here. And whenever you feel like I am not allowing your point of view through, all you got to do is point at it. Or if you want to have some fun, you can go over and put that hat on your head and remind me that I'm, that, or that I'm, or that we are not listening to you. And so then the team leader will check in with that and say, how's it going? What do we need to do differently? They're constantly checking in. You know, the self-awareness thing, um, you know, they're not afraid of what they're going to hear. This is tough. This is not easy, right? Um, but they, they know, they know that to unleash the talents, they have to create an emotionally intelligent environment where people are comfortable and then we'll take the risks, a safe environment. Right? What's the difference between your model of the emotionally intelligent team and high performance and other models of team effectiveness? The difference in, 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 our, in our model is a, we recognize that teams are emotional incubators. And we know that emotion matters, that emotion's a signal, okay? Mm -hmm. And we know that people have social and emotional needs that have to be met. And so our norms address that. That's, that's the first thing. You know, when I have, when I talk to other um, people who coach teams, because we've had people coach teams with our model and they come back and they say, we can't believe the conversation that came out of this. And, and we say, well, what are the other models that you've used? And they say, well, the other models don't really address some of these emotional needs. They don't open up the conversation. They don't create this feeling. They don't begin with this creating this feeling of belonging. Um, all right, that's the first thing. But here's the other thing. Most models are not very actionable, Dan. I had the most interesting thing happen to me. I was invited to give a, a keynote address on how to coach a team. And so wanting to be not selfish, I said, okay, what I'm going to do is get these different models together and I'm going to present a whole bunch of models and show how great it is to use a model when you're coaching. I couldn't find any good models. They're not actionable. You know, they don't tell you what to do. They don't. And then I started finding all these articles that talked about how we don't teach people how to build teams. There's these articles out there lamenting the fact that we focus on, and I'm sorry to say this, but we focus on emotional intelligence, but we focus on the individual. And sometimes we focus, obviously, obviously not just the individual, excuse me, because even emotional intelligence involves interpersonal interactions, but we don't take it beyond the interpersonal to get to the team. Teams are systems. How do you build that? Our model shows you how to build a team as a system. Can you tell us how to build an emotional intelligence, high-performing team? But the primary thing you need to do is you need to get to know one another. You need to prioritize something like having a check-in at the start of every meeting where you hear what's on people's minds and you've obviously bound it. And I would recommend that you can this task the two team members, not your, not, you know, as, as a leader, don't, you don't manage this, give it to somebody else, hand it off. That's a primary thing you need to do because you need to begin to build, um, uh, to meet the individual needs uh, and, 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 and figure out how people need to be treated. So that you begin to see people are different. You know, you know back, back to this idea of the golden rule isn't good enough because people don't want to be treated like you want to be treated. They want to be treated like they want to be treated. Okay. And so within that conversation, you talk about how people 
want feedback. It's one of those conversations. If I'm going to give you feedback, Dan, how do you want to hear it? Do you want me to take you into some quiet area and let you know, you know, the kinds of things that you could be doing to better, better perform better? Or do you want me to just on the, in the moment blurt it out? So everyone's got different needs around that. So you talk about that because by the way, in top teams, they give each other feedback. All right. Openly. Okay. Openly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you work toward that. In the beginning, mm -hmm. that's hard to do. Not necessarily openly. You work toward open, right? Once you really build that sense that I'm part of this and people value me, it's easier to take it in the moment. I mean, I've worked with um, teams that we've developed before and years later you come to them and they say, many of them have been promoted mm -hmm. because they get that feedback within their team. And then they come to you and they say, it's awful in my new team. I don't get any feedback anymore. You know, how am I supposed to get better at this? I need that. I crave that feedback. The second thing you do, need to do is basically define norms around um, well, how you're going to maintain that, but also how you're going to operate. You know, how often are you going to um, 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 have open conversations about what's working and what's not working? You know, um, what, 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 um, and we make recommendations on this. How often are you going to talk about um, the tough thorny things, you know, do sort of a SWOT analysis. What are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? What are our opportunities? What are our threats? Okay. How are we going to bring positivity into the conversation when we get stuck in threats? So we give you, we give you categories of norms to, to think about addressing and how are we going to manage our stakeholders? So we basically give these three buckets of categories of norms. We work with teams to develop norms in those categories. They get really excited about it. And then we leave them and we come back two weeks later and we say, how's it going? And they say, nothing's changed. And we say, oh, we forgot to tell you that this is change. This is not easy. You're going to have to actually do this stuff. Oh, oh, okay. Um, I had one uh, leader come to me once and, said, and say, well, we developed a norm. From now on, we were all going to show up on time. This was a big problem in our team. And there was, you know, that just set everybody off right at the beginning of the meeting all the time. Um, and so she said, we developed that norm and now they're not doing it. And I said to her, oh, so the norm continues to be that you're going to show up whenever you want. Okay, You haven't changed the norm. You better go back and find out what you really want that norm to be. And when you do find it out, you better hold people accountable to that norm. Again, that's the leader that can do that, right? So then they say, oh, and then we talk about how, how hard this is going to be because change is hard. And then, you know, two weeks later, they're into it. And they're doing so, the hard so you just made a distinction between the espoused norm and the acted on norm. It's the second, what yes. people actually do that tells you what the norm is. Yes, absolutely. So first, you, first you define it and even defining the norm, mm -hmm. if you're going to hold it, gives you a greater sense of belonging and control because the control helps you feel like you can maintain your sense of belonging and worth. Um, but yeah, then, and then you espouse it. And then you want to go back into your hole and do things the same way you always did. I have this every single time. Every single time. <laughs> One of the most poignant things I think Vanessa talks about in this interview is about nonverbal cues and about our deep need to belong, right? She talks about fear and anticipation, particularly when we're coming into a new team or a new environment. 
even before we enter the room, we're questioning whether we're going to fit in or whether we're going to belong, right? And so we step into the room and we have that fear, the sense of hypervigilance, where we're looking around the room and we're scanning the environment for clues and cues as to whether we're being accepted, whether we belong, whether we fit in. Really what she's talking about is the currency of attention. Who is attending to who, right? And this was so striking to me because especially in this virtual world of Zoom, I'm thinking about being in a facilitation role, right? When you're in a facilitation role and you're speaking, right, at the center of, in, in your little cube at the corner of the screen and you're looking to everyone else's little cubes and you see people looking down, you see people looking away and the thoughts are like panic, like what I'm saying isn't interesting, maybe I don't belong here, maybe I'm not adding value. Something else here that I wanna say about belonging, which is the piece around knowing one another, being known on your team, feeling like you know your team. And I think there's multiple ways to know one another on a team. And maybe the first way that we think of, particularly within our organizations, is around strengths, knowing one another's strengths. And maybe the second level that we might think of is interests, knowing what someone is actually interested in doing in terms of projects and work, right? And the strengths and the interests help us delegate appropriately and, and actually like make traction towards a goal. But there's another piece here around vulnerability. And I think this applies to the strengths component, but it also applies to this, this emotional piece, right? Vulnerability about how we're feeling. Vulnerability around where we come from, what we want, what we desire, what we're being informed by, where our weaknesses are, where we feel triggered, where we feel traumatized, where we feel scarred. So the way that we build connection and belonging is that we take like just enough risk so that we're not like completely catapulting ourselves over the edge, right? And we're not like <laughs> opening ourselves up to be, you know, attacked in a way that could potentially harm us, but that it feels a little risky when we're sharing with someone, right? And then how are we met? We're either met with attention or we're met by being ignored. And if we're met by being ignored when we take a risk, we immediately shut down and we usually don't take another risk, right? And so this currency of attention and how it relates to belonging, if we really wanna build intimacy and connection, if we really wanna know one another as team members, then attention is critical because we need to be there and we need to be present if someone is going to take a risk and share, you know, 15% more than they're comfortable with, and then we need to reciprocate with also sharing 15% more than we're comfortable with. It's kind of like a, um, I'm trying to think of the equivalent of a card game. Like, you know, I'll see your 15% and raise you 15%. Like, <laughs> and this is, this is how I think of um, building connection and building vulnerability is like reciprocal risk taking among many members of the team. Yeah, you talked about knowing strengths and um, and then you talked about knowing weaknesses. And I think that being able to 
be honest, uh, feel safe enough to and trust the people that you're with enough to be honest about your weaknesses. That kind of vulnerability is just in a very practical level makes a team stronger because if you understand what somebody else isn't as good at, you know that you can pick up and guaranteed you're not as good at something that they're better at and that they can pick up if you can be honest with it. So just on a really practical level, when we can be honest with one another, then we know what we all need and we know what we all need to do. It's interesting to think about our weaknesses or limitations, right? Or our areas, our um, areas of, of potential and growth, if we're going to really frame this in the positive, sure. which I, <laughs> um, so I think in terms of like thinking about my own weaknesses and areas of growth, some feel very clear to me, like they're just very straightforward. Others, I don't actually know that they're real. They're actually rooted in like a deep fear or a deep insecurity, right? And so it's interesting to think about when we're hearing someone reflect on their weaknesses, areas of opportunity, how real and actual is that? Where we're like, cool, I can do that task or do that thing or step in and be strong in that area that, that, you're, that you're not in this moment, right? But there's also another opportunity where we can say, actually, I don't actually think that's a weakness of yours. I think that's a fear you have. And so how can I relate to you from an empathic place and like help build your confidence around that thing, right? And help you see that actually, you might actually have that skill, right? And maybe, you know, for, for many reasons, you don't think you do because maybe many people along the way told you a different story about yourself. I mean, whatever, whatever that is. But I think it's not just about picking up and sort of filling in the holes for other people. It's also just about like holding people in their fear so that we know that that's happening. Cause I think that that's also the piece, right? When we have a fear about something we overcompensate <laughs> in all of these other ways <laughs> and it comes out sideways. And, um, you know, I, I've like certainly done that, right? I've had, I've had fears and have overcompensated in a way that has made me probably come across as like a little bossy or, a little aggressive, right? Sure. But sure. it's like, if I can share you? that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just kidding, but I- No, you're not, you don't no, no, no. I, But both, both. I mean, I said it because yeah, it's yeah, funny yeah. and it's funny because there's a grain of truth there. And, yeah. um, and we can say that because this is a good example, actually, you and I love each other deeply and we have the safety to be honest in that way with one another. And, and um, that's beautiful. You're, you, you pointed out something that I, I find very interesting is that fear is another driver of blind spots. Mm. And I think blind spots in ourselves a lot. Mm and um, keeps us from, from seeing ourselves. And that's one of the ways that 360 assessments can be so helpful because you're soliciting the mm -hmm. perspective of, of others. Where you're, you're not just trapped in your own understanding of the world anymore. You get to, you get to see what the difference is. How, do, how am I relating to me and how, how do I come off? Maybe I'm, I'm actually decent at this thing that I think I'm terrible at.
If you appreciated this episode with Vanessa Druskett, you may also enjoy learning more about her work in Team Emotional Intelligence. That's the in-depth video conversation that I mentioned in this episode. It's between Dan Goleman and Vanessa Druskett. And like I said, I have used these videos with my own team for years. They're in bite-sized chunks, so it's really perfect for watching with a group and then still having time to discuss the video and talk about what that would mean for us as a team. Uh, it's super practical stuff, and people get really excited about implementing it because we can all feel that it's this work that makes the kind of a workplace that we all want to have. It makes an honest environment where we feel valued for our contribution and respected and supported as an individual and where we're trusted to hold our own and to do our work. It's made a big difference at Keystep Media. I really recommend them. That video is called Team Emotional Intelligence, and we're offering 50% off of it for our listeners. You can get it at keystepmedia.com shop, and we have a coupon code FPP50. That's FPP50. Again, that's keystepmedia.com shop. And while you're there, I want to mention that we're clearing space at our warehouse. So we have uh, 75% off of our physical CDs, DVDs, USBs with audiobooks on them. So if physical media is still your thing, it's a good time to go to keystepmedia.com. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, EI and Beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by co-hosts Daniel Goleman and Hanuman Goleman and is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Ioni, whose voice you heard at the top of the show, and to today's guest, Vanessa Druskett. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon and me, Gabriela Acosta. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson. Music in this episode includes Action Investigation by Komiku and theme music by Amber Ojeda. Until next time, be well. <laughs> hi, Liz. Hi, Liz. Hi, Hanuma. Hi, Hanuma. <laughs> Probably got a good rhythm in there. Give me an H, H, give me an A, A, give me an N, N, Hanuman, Hanuman, give me an H, Hanuman, If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. 
For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.